Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Steve Clark, and welcome to Brooklands. Thank you for being here tonight, and once again, for supporting the Trust. Um, tonight, you'll be pleased. I'm a very happy boy. We finished last year on a full house, and we're here tonight with the sellout, so thank you. Um, now, last week, I was honoured to have lunch with two of our guests, um, and through that conversation, I know that you're going to have a fabulous evening. So first, will you please welcome your host for the evening, in my mind, the world's best motoring historian and journalist, Simon Taylor. Ladies and gentlemen, good evening. How extraordinary to watch that stellar film uh, for all of us, uh, and certainly those of us who were there, and we're going to be hearing tonight from uh, certainly two people who were there. It, it was a bad day for Formula One, one which will never be forgotten. But what we're going to do tonight, much more cheerfully, is we're going to talk about the car that is st statistically, if I can say it, the most successful Formula One car of all time. And it's wonderful that we've got three people who made that car do what it did. In those days, if you remember, there were 16 rounds of the World Championship. This car in that one season won 15 of them. Quite extraordinary achievements. So can you say hello, please, to the man who designed it, Steve Nichols. Please come up, Steve. <laughs> To Matthew Jeffries, who was oh, you sit there? Okay. Uh, Matthew Jeffries was the chief design engineer on the project, and he is here somewhere. And Richard West, he's a business guru now, but in 1988 he was running the business and management side of the McLaren Formula One team probably got closer to the drivers and the key personnel behind the scenes than anyone. Richard West. So, yes, that extraordinary statistic. 16 races. The car, the McLaren MP44, won 15 of those 16 races. Even more amazing, in 10 of those 16 races, the cars finished 1-2. The season was 1988. The drivers were two of the greatest of all time, one of whom, well, both of whom you've seen during that film, Ayrton Senna and Alain Prost. But it's fair to say, I think, that the real champion that year was the car and the team. The team scored more Constructors' Championship points than just about all the other teams put together. That was real domination. It was, 31, it was 30 years ago, and when Formula One fans and historians look back, as is always the case with motor racing, they think of the stars in the cockpit, and indeed the pairing of Prost and Senna was pretty historic. But the really fascinating stories tend to come from the people who actually made it happen, the people behind the champagne spraying on the podium, and the people with whom uh, without whom there would be no victories and no titles. So let's talk to the three men who were really there. Steve, I'm going to start with you. You joined McLaren in 1980, 
And with the departure of John Barnard to Ferrari, you became the chief designer. You did MP43 in 1987. That was the previous car. Uh, that you got second place in the World Championship with that. But in 1988, things were suddenly different. Different rules, different engine. So tell us, how much time did you have to kind of change gear between the 1987 car and the 1988? Well, as you can imagine, it was a very intense period. And uh, uh, John Barnard had left, and, and uh, it was up to the team you left behind to, to take over. So in that period that you mentioned, we had to design the 87 car. We also had to design the 88 car. Uh, we did a, a engine installation on the MP43 to test the engine, so that car had to be designed and built and tested as, as well. So uh, there wasn't a lot of time. Uh, John Barnard had left in August of, of 86, and so we started on the 87 car then. And of course, obviously, it had to be done in you know, February, March uh, time for the, for the first race. It may have been a little bit of a mistake on my part, but I'd left it quite late in 87 to do much design work on that car because I wanted to know what engine we were going to use, which was... But you didn't know what engine you were no, going to have at that stage? No, not until... So this great coup of McLaren getting the Honda engine from Lotus. I'm very grateful to... to um, Lotus and uh, Williams and perhaps even Spirit for developing such a great engine for us to use. <laughs> yeah. Yes, the engine uh, was brilliant, certainly worth waiting for, but it meant the, the design was quite delayed. I wanted to have a fully integrated design and uh, engine chassis, and uh, we worked very well with Honda as it, as it turned out. And, uh, and so we were able to accomplish that. And I guess the end result was probably better for, for waiting. Mm. Uh, by the time I was kicking myself for not starting earlier. But had we started earlier, perhaps the result wouldn't have been quite as good. We'd had to redesign things for the new engine. And presumably, uh, the regulations for 88 said that the fuel tanks had to be smaller. The engine was smaller, I think, more compact than the Porsche tag, the yes, tag engine yes, in the right. previous year. That's right. So you were able to make a much smaller car. Yes, that's right. I mean, in actual fact, we used the same design ethos for the MP43 and the MP44. Uh, the main difference with the 44 was that we had, as you say, a smaller engine. So that aspect of the car could be more compact. In addition to that, the, the engine had a single... Uh, pop-off valve at the front of the engine, whereas the Porsche engine that preceded it had had, it had two pop-off valves, one for each bank, uh, further back, and, uh, and so that made it more bulky. The tilt and clutch had arrived, smaller diameter multi-plate clutch, which had allowed Honda to lower the engine. So we had those components, those different components to work with, the smaller fuel tank, smaller um, engine. So when we looked at the layout, we, we laid the driver down a bit as well, trying to get him to fit within the profile of, uh, of the engine and, and the fuel tank. Seemed pointless to have him sort of set up tall in front of those smaller components. So we ended up with a car that was, uh, that was quite low. We weren't trying desperately to create the lowest possible car. My uh, design ethos has always been to use all the parameters 
uh, available to you, all the uh, components, uh, use your creativity, the people available, the money available to build the best mm. possible car. And the fact that we had those components ended up meaning that, that the car was quite low. But it wasn't anything we really thought of. It, you know, obviously you're going to make the car as low as you can mm. with the components that you have available. So uh, that, that's the way it turned out. Well, let's bring Matthew in now. It was um, 30 years ago we're talking about. Now, yeah. you, um, I think, were particularly concerned with the monocoque of the car from the engine forward. That was part mm. of your involvement. We're talking 30 yeah. years ago. We yeah. now know that everything happens with computers. 30 years ago, did you have an old-fashioned pencil and a piece of paper? Uh, yes, we certainly did. And uh, we, we, it was just the beginning of CAD for us as well. So we, I think we had a first sort of computer vision CAD system in, uh, in 87. Um, but 95% of the car was, was uh, on the drawing board. And uh, we used the CAD when we could to just really do sort of detailed checks on geometries and things, which was quite handy at the time. But we were so inexperienced at it that it was not really used in any great anger. But, uh, but the other challenge that Steve forgot to mention was the fact that the uh, driver's feet now had to be behind the front wheel axle line. Oh, that was a change in regulations that's, for that that's year. That's regulation. Yeah. Uh, so that presented its own problems in as much that um, theoretically the car would get longer because of that uh, and we were able to lose some of that increase in wheelbase by shortening the uh, engine, uh, shortening the fuel tank uh, dimension so I think overall it was only about four inches longer in wheelbase mm. than the 4.3 but uh, the other problem was that um, whereas compared with previous cars uh, all of a sudden there was no space for the dampers and rockers, uh, dampers and uh, conventional spring damper units. So we had to come up with a, a new solution for that. Um, and we looked at various solutions like putting the, the, the uh, spring dampers horizontally at one stage and that didn't look quite right, difficult to get to for the mechanics. Uh, but we ended up finding a place, uh, as you'll, for those who know the car, um, just behind the ankles of the driver where their legs naturally got a little bit thinner in plan view. So just left enough room in, uh, uh, for feet. Uh, so that's why they angle backwards, the, the pull rods and, and the, uh, the assembly angles backwards. But I mean this must have brought a different problem because you had a very small, very short driver in Alain Prost yes. and you had a kind of medium tall it did. driver in Ashton Senna. Yes, so whereas Senna, and they were appreciably different as well as you could probably tell, but uh, whereas uh, Senna fit the bill in terms of being able to lie him down in a way that, uh, you know, the car uh, lended itself to, with Prost being significantly shorter, he, if, we, if he laid down, he couldn't see over the front, so he had to, uh, <laughs> we had to sort of prop him up by a good three or four inches um, for that reason. And even when we did that, um, we, his feet then started hitting some of the vertical panels around the, uh, the, the damper bulkheads that we put in. Cool. So it's interesting, just recently, in fact, for, for the book that Steve Rendell has written, uh, uh, one of the things that Alan had commented on, that he, 
he battled all year with his feet rubbing on, you know, in, on, in a place that wasn't ideal for him in, in yeah. terms of uh, the, the bulkhead. So what did you do? I mean, often at races you had the, the, the cellar car, the pros car, and you had yeah. a tea car. Yes. And although I know that you would have some sort of allocation for the tea car from race to race, mm. when you were actually at the circuit, that would, for one reason or another, change, wouldn't it? It, it, it So did, how did yeah. you put Prost into Senna's car and vice versa? Yes. Um, <clears throat> well, they both had their own seats, of course, so Prost, uh, custom-made seats, sat him naturally further forward in his, in his driving position. Mm. But the main problem was the pedal pads. So the, pedal, the pads on the pedals were separated from the actual stems of the, of the pedals. So when the teach car driver change came over, they actually just changed the pads over. So, so that's, uh, that was how we did that. Uh, but you're right, it was to, to make it a minimum effort, it, everything had to be considered like that for the quick change. Well, there was, a, there, was a, there was a kit of bits to do all of that. And well, the, at the track? Yeah, and the mechanic in charge of the T-car uh, had a difficult job on several occasions when he had to swap back and forth to But isn't make it all right that Ayrton liked a stiffer, particularly at the front, he liked the car to be stiffer than Alan did. So the suspension setups all had to change. Well, yeah, there, there'd be uh, some changes in the setup as well as just the driver's position. Their setups weren't, they were a little different, but not dramatically different. Mm -hmm. uh, and it was interesting that the two drivers uh, had a lot of respect for each other. And they- Certainly at that point. Yeah, at it that changed point. changed a bit. Well, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> They became a little uh, upset with each other, but, <laughs> but uh, to say the least. But even then, they still had the utmost respect for each other, sure. their driving ability. And they trusted each other in their ability to sort the car out and do the setup. So typically, they would start off with quite a similar setup. And through the weekend, they or through a test, they would diverge. I see. Uh, and then eventually, as they found good solutions and bad solutions, they would converge again. And if they didn't converge, to where they were quite close again, then they were quite nervous why they weren't uh, right. fairly close. Has he got it right and I haven't? <laughs> that sort of thing, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Richard, let's, let's bring you in here. You were responsible for making all the commercial relationships work. And even though maybe for Formula One 30 years ago wasn't quite such a huge money machine as it is now, we're still talking about pretty substantial uh, sums of money. I've always thought but one of the reasons why the car looked so clean and beautiful compared to the kind of Christmas trees we have now is that you had organised just one main sponsor in Marlborough. Their name was in the name of the team, Marlborough McLaren. Uh, obviously, you had acknowledgements for Shell, for Honda, who made the engine, Goodyear, the tyres. I know Tang Heuer was on the front. But really your relationship with Marlborough must have been hugely important. I mean, let me ask the question, which you can probably answer 30 years later. How much money per year were Marlborough putting in? That's an interesting one. First of all, Simon, that picture that was up there first showing the 88 team, um, apart from us three up here, I know there's a bunch of the guys that were with the 88 programme in the audience tonight. So, well, great to see you all, guys. It's amazing that none of us have changed in looks since those pictures were taken. And certainly, you know, I haven't put any weight on at all. I'm thrilled. Um, yeah, Marlborough in those days was an interesting one because John Hogan, who was um, worked for ROM in the early days around P4, Project 4, Hoagie became the link man for a short time between Philip Morris and Project 4 and the merger with McLaren, with Crichton Brown, Bob Illman, Ron Dennis, 
and uh, John Barnard. And Hoagie went to, the stories he told me, Hoagie went to see Philip Morris uh, on Ron's behest at the time the two companies were merged. And Hoagie came back and said, okay, you know, the deal's going to happen. There's only one thing. I'm off to work for Philip Morris. And in actual fact, it was the best thing that happened for McLaren because John drove the Marlborough program and the Marlborough World Championship t team program, MWCT. And I think when I joined the team in mid-84, we had a budget from Philip Morris around, I think at the time, it was about seven or eight million dollars, which today, you know, would probably get you a wing mirror deal on a current Formula One car. But it was a lot of money. And I do remember the, the man who was in charge of Philip Morris then was a very, you, you will remember him, Aliado Butzi, who was a very striking, very stylish Italian. Ron and myself went off to um, Switzerland to present the new budget for the 86 season. And you credit with me too much, actually. I mean, I was one of a team of people who were responsible for bringing the money in. But Ron always had myself and a guy called Malcolm Billiard put the presentations together. Unbeknown to me, Ron had an additional slide made up. And John Hogan had done all the groundwork. He'd gone along to see Aliado Butzi. He'd said, look, you can expect for next year, Ron's going to ask you for about 11 million bucks, etc." And as we were going in, you know, young, slim, suited, booted, Ron sort of, you know, making sure he was absolutely immaculate as always. He took a slide out of his pocket and he said to me, can you pop that in the slide? And, you know, no digital stuff. It was all slide carousels. He said, can you pop that in there? And uh, I said, what is it? He said, don't look at it. Just put it in. You know, I'll discuss it at the end of the presentation. So I sat there and I did my usual thing. Mr. Butsy, lovely to see you, John. Thank you very much for all the efforts. Ron now is going to present, you know, the program. And we went through this wonderful colour scheme of everything being matching up, as you rightfully say. And the last slide came up and it was $18 million. <laughs> And I can't use the phrase that John Hogan used, but it was, he looked at Ron and he said, you've this up. And Aliado just stood up as the gentleman he was, buttoned his jacket up, gently put his cigarette out and said, Ron, thank you very much, Richard, and walked out of the room. And I looked at everybody and I said, what now? And Hoagie said, I think you could be looking for a different coloured car next year. <laughs> and uh, we sat there very, very patiently and I looked at Ron with a look of absolute panic and he just looked at me and he said, Stay calm, you know. And we just sat there because we were coming off the back of a successful championship year, uh, or years. And John came back into the room, not Aliado, and said, OK, he's going to be back in five minutes and we'll meet you. And we came very close to that inflated figure. But, of course, what it did then was the caveat from Philip Morris was that you can put whatever you like on that car as long as it's black, white and red. And that was why, in that era, we became known as the Red and Whites. You know, we're, and all of us very proudly so, because that period of time, Ron redefined the image of a racing car and everybody else followed. Mm. And I don't think what we see today would have been possible without... And, of course, you'd see the detail. Red and White, the mechanics. I mean, the, the, the whole pitch used to be a kind of sea of Red and White. We had... Uh, Deodora were our trainer provider, our training shoes. We had new training shoes every race. Because when you walked into the paddock... And you walked around the tyres and you scuffed around the cars. There'd maybe be a black mark on the, you know, these, like these are all shiny. Ron would insist that everybody had new trainers every single race. Mm. You didn't go outside of... And at first, it was a hard thing to accept. If you came from another team, I'd come from Williams, which was pretty laid back in 84. Ron was not like that. He wanted everything. We had the same coloured Tag Heuer watches. We had the same belts. We had our names in exactly the same places. And I remember changing my Foca Pass lanyard for a metal one. And Ron pulled me into the garage and said, I don't know what that is, but you've got 10 seconds to put the other one back on. 
<laughs> you know, and you think to yourself, really? But then you look at that picture of us all up there, and you, you know, you look at the pictures of the cars and the workshops, and George Langhorne's here, the man responsible for painting those wonderful cars in all those years. Nobody came close. So it would be fair, would it, to say that the way McLaren became in the mid-1980s, mid to late 1980s, and that total domination in 88, was that a kind of further step up in the professionalism mm. in Formula One? It was a sort of move forward to the extraordinary pitch we've got today. Yeah, Ron also changed. I mean, um, there's a lot said and a lot written about Ron, but those of us that have worked with him, he's a remarkable individual. Behind the scenes, people never see. He's remarkably generous. He can be very harsh, very hard as I found out when I handed my notice in in December 88. I was sat opposite his desk and he said to me, is there anything else? And I said, no, why'd you ask? He said, you don't work here anymore. I just handed my notice in and I said, I'm just going back to my desk. He said, no, you're not. Stuff will be in a box, it's on your way home. Shut the door on your way out, click. That was it, yeah. end of five years at McLaren. And in fact, many old McLarenistas will say, you know, you always leave by the front door, but you sure as hell leave by the back one. You know? <laughs> and all of that is hearsay, but actually, the thing that made the difference was 84, 85, and a bit of 86, the team was hugely competitive, drivers, constructors, championships. Williams started to come on song, mid-86. Then we had Johansson, we had Rosberg, obviously senior, uh, in 86, and then we went across to Johansson in 87, where we only won three races, I think. And early on in the 87 season, Ron always came in in really smart Chino-type jeans and a Bosch shirt and a blues on, cashmere zip-up bomber jacket, one day suddenly appeared in a boss suit. And I said, you know, where are we going? He said, nowhere, this is how I want the team. And he, he looked at every single aspect of the team. And I think the 88 season really started back in that early part of 87 when, I'll use the expression, he said to me, you know, I don't like taking it like this up the rear. He said, we are going to be winning again. And he said, to do that, we're going to have to make a quantum leap. And you look at the factories that we had at that time, which were very far ahead of some of the facilities the other teams had. Ron just was relentless in stepping us up. And it was a good thing he did, because when Honda, as Steve said, with that magnificent engine, Shell came on with fantastic fuel technology, the sponsors all increased their budget over and over again. And we had to do it, because you had to be ready for Prost and Senna. You couldn't leave any stone unturned with those two guys. Fantastic we worked with, but they didn't take prisoners. Well, I was going to bring Steve back in here because um, you said earlier you had a big thank you for the fact that Lotus gave you, gave you, uh, you were able to take from under Lotus's nose that wonderful Honda engine, but you also took out and said, and I think I read somewhere that maybe it wasn't the whole story, but certainly part of the story was that Alain Prost said to Ron, when Ron said, who do you think you would like to be driving alongside, he said, Ayrton Senna. Is that right? Well, yeah, I think that is correct. And, and Prost really was a good team player. He wanted the best possible team, the strongest possible team, and, and he recognised that Senna was going to be, you know, a driver of his own calibre. And I think it also demonstrates that Prost had uh, uh, ultimate confidence in his own ability. Yeah. He may have underestimated Senna a little bit, but uh, but they were both extremely strong. And yeah. and Senna, in spite of everything that's been written, even 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 in the difficult years, uh, he had ultimate respect for Prost. He used to say to me, Look, we don't have to worry about the others. Yeah. It's only Alain. So he was he was racing Alain and that was it. It was kind of like an America's Cup 
yeah. challenge race. It was they, they only really considered. But I mean, the man you always want to beat is your own teammate because he's the man who's got the same equipment. That is the only pure measure. Sure. <clears throat> I've read that, um, well, I, I, I can remember that after um, Alain Prost retired and Senna was still racing, um, I mean, we saw in that film um, Prost working as a TV man, um, it was then that Prost began to be much more generous in what he said about Ayrton. So the, the respect was always there. Uh, I th the respect was always there, but neither one of them would want to show sort of any... Uh any weakness, and they were inevitably extremely competitive, and and they worked every minute of their lives to uh, improve their competitive position, not not just on the track or in the paddock, but yeah. away from the track and so forth. And once they were no longer competing against each other, then it was easier for them to become more friendly with each other. Uh, I think it is inevitably thus, and you know you'd see a situation like Senna and Berger. Um, there was an obvious difference in natural talent and ability. And so they were able to be quite friendly because I think they both recognized their station. Mm. Uh, but in a situation where they're both very competitive, they both want the same thing, it's inevitable that you would get the result that you got. In, in modern days, you might compare it to uh, um, uh, Rosberg and, and Hamilton. And Hamilton. You know, they, 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 they were never going to have a friendly... <coughs> Mm. situation. Much easier when there's a... Although, of course, when Senna arrived, um, I mean, there was a sort of generation gap to a degree, because start of 19, 1998, Prost had been at McLaren for four seasons. Um, he'd been world champion twice, whereas Senna was coming in from Lotus, not quite such a competitive team. He'd won races, but he hadn't been world champion. So there was presumably a a confidence that Prost had, which must have somehow ebbed away as repeatedly in their battles for pole position. Sometimes it was Prost, but more often it was Senna. Yeah. I think that's true. Um, and it, it did perhaps rock uh, Alan's confidence in the team. Um, but we always gave them equal equipment and, and equal opportunities. And, and I would say to him that he that he didn't have to worry about that. You know, he was always going to have the utmost support from the from the team. Uh, I mean, I was Senna's race engineer, uh, but Prost and I got along very well, and I would run him in tests. And inevitably, I mean, he asked me to go to Ferrari with him, so you know, he had no problem with me being sure. Senna's race engineer. He knew he was going to get the best of everything, and that he would have my full attention at tests and yeah. and so forth. And I mean, it was a similar situation with Lauda and Prost when when uh, Prost came along. Uh, Lauda, you know, uh, hard as nails, but he still needed that reassurance. He, yeah. he viewed. I mean, you talk about Prost being established. Even though when Senna came along, that was the same situation with Lauda. Uh, he was established, Prost came along, but he was worried that Prost was the new boy. He had Ron's full attention, etc. Yeah. Yeah. So I had to reassure Lauda, you know, and I would say to her, it doesn't matter. Any of that doesn't matter. You're never going to get inferior equipment. I will make sure that you get absolutely equal equipment. All you've got to worry about, you've got your engineers, you've got your mechanics, you've got equal equipment, nothing else matters. Just get on with the job Excellent. of driving the Excellent. car. So, uh, it reminds me that Prost has said quite recently that he remembers the louder year 
Yes, and the fact that uh, Nicky's tactic changed to beating him in the race and not worry about qualifying so much because he knew he couldn't beat him during qualifying. Mm. And Prost carried that philosophy through with Senna as well. So he worked on his race strategies more than... Just, just one more thing in that regard. I mean, I, you talk about great drivers and so forth. I, I always regarded Lauda, Prost and Senna as pretty much equal. Uh, a lot of people would elevate Senna, but to me they just reached their peak slightly differently. So, mm. so you had Lauda had reached his peak and was perhaps on the downhill side when Prost came along and then Prost perhaps on the downhill side when Senna came along. But if you could just rearrange the eras, uh, I, I think they would be equivalent. They get there in different ways, different yeah. personalities and different strengths and weaknesses. But you know, for me, they're pretty yeah. much equivalent in, yeah. Uh, yeah. in their... Uh, ability to drive the car and extract the most from yeah. And of course the engineer really knows what's going on because you're you're in there in the heat of the moment. But Richard. Now, I was just going to say, really fascinating listening to Steve and Matthew talking about that because I saw a very different side. The guys, when they, you know, they knew each other's abilities at the start of the 88 season and what was unusual, as you and I were talking about earlier, was the fact that a Lotus driver was actually in the paddock alongside Ayrton, alongside Alan in Monza 87 when Ron announced the partnership and the engine deal. When we got to the start of the 88 season, it was very obvious as a commercial guy looking in that the quality that Steve was talking about was there. But in those days, we worked our drivers much harder commercially at the circuits and at social events than perhaps they'd even do today. And Ayrton and Alan always shared the duties. So one evening, an evening like this, we'd be at a cocktail party and we'd bring both drivers. Later in the evening, Alan would go and do an event, Ayrton would go back to the hotel. There was never any questioning of Crichton, Brown or myself over what they were going to do until Monaco. When Senna did what he did in qualifying at Monaco, I saw, and I, you know, like Steve, I worked very closely alongside Alan and still occasionally see him now, one of my favourite all-time guys to work with, alongside Ayrton. But after that, if we said, ah, oh, here's your schedule for the weekend, and Ayrton had three events and Alan had two, Ayrton would say, why am I doing three? Why is there not, what's, what's Alan doing this evening that I'm not doing? And in the end, it became a really difficult thing commercially. And in fact, towards the end of that season, when the battle was really heating up between them, we got to a situation where Ron would have to take Ayrton to, I remember it very well in Adelaide, Ron took Ayrton to one event at seven o'clock, I took Alan to another event, the other side of the city at seven o'clock, and the briefing was that all four of us met back in the Adelaide Hilton at a quarter to eight to keep the drivers happy, that they, one person wasn't getting more information than the other one. So on the, it, it did have a play on the commercial side, even though they had the equality that Steve's talking about. But, you know, a lot of people may not realise, but in that period, when they were, shall I say, at their worst in terms of their personal relationship, uh, the team never split at all, mm -hmm. and it just wasn't a problem for us. Mm -hmm. They st they still, uh, interestingly enough, they still worked well together as a team. They just didn't talk to each other. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> <laughs> it's like going through a divorce where you're only allowed to talk to your lawyers. You know, Senna would talk to me, I would talk to his engineer, he would talk mm -hmm. to Prost. And it would go back and forth like that, but they still shared all the information, had all the debris. It, it just happened in a slightly roundabout way. But it was probably a problem, well, undoubtedly a problem for Ron, but for the rest of us, we just kind you of laughed on. it off, really. I wanted to bring Matthew back in because um, one of the... Well, actually, what I should first mention, we'll come to this perhaps a little bit later, but there is a wonderful book 
which, um, if you haven't seen it, uh, we mentioned it briefly earlier because uh, Steve, who wrote the book, Steve Rendell, is here. In fact, Steve, stand up and take a bow because you've done a wonderful job. Where yeah. is he? There, oh, he's right at the back. Okay. Um, this is a book that's called, slightly humorously, I think, uh, the McLaren MP44 Owner's Workshop Manual. <laughs> we should all be so lucky to have a workshop. It's in the same format of those Haynes manuals that we all used to buy when we had a rusty Ford Escort, and it would say the Ford Escort Owner's Manual. Well, this is the McLaren Owner's Workshop Manual. It's absolutely fascinating. Uh, it's probably the most detailed book I've ever read about one single car. And you will have an opportunity later on this evening. I think there is a little pile at the back. So until they run out, uh, you'll have the opportunity to buy one. <clears throat> and you may even get the odd autograph in it if you're very lucky. One of the things that comes out in that book is the extraordinary pressure of producing that new car. What used to happen in those days was that there was a first five-day test that would happen at some European circuit. And then immediately <coughs> after that, Everybody had to go to Brazil for the first race. And the gap was, I think, 10 days or something. And you had to produce the MP44, the first one, and get it to that Estoril, the, I'm sorry, I keep saying Estoril, it was Imola, sorry. You had to get it to that Imola test. It's a five-day test. You very nearly didn't do it. You only got there on the last day, I think. That's right, yes, that's right. But the, the whole story of the car is... Uh, makes interesting reading because of it, such a short gestation period. Mm. And uh, at the time, you know, we, we were used to turning the crank and, and getting on and doing it, but we realised as well that with Senna coming and Honda, it was all going to be a little bit special. Um, but there, there was a team of us of about, what, 12 people in, in all working on, on the car, uh, designing the car? Yeah, uh, the 4-4. Four, four. Yeah. The total technical staff was yeah. 17. But yeah. it was for the 4 and the 5 and the 4B yeah. and the 3B. Yeah, we did the 3B, which was the mule car with the Honda engine, which was a 3, obviously, chassis modified to take the Honda engine, or, or the old Honda engine, because the new one with the lower crank hadn't arrived at that stage. Um, so we had to do that as well. Um, we also had the first carbon fibre nose box, which was being introduced. We'd never done a carbon fibre nose box before, so that was all a new learning curve. And we built our own uh, nine metre tall drop tower at the back of the factory, where we, we, we dropped loads of test nose boxes. And it was just about holding it up and dropping it Exactly, under gravity. Yes, yeah. that's right. And, uh, Formula One actually, has that, changed, Actually, that it? structure, <laughs> when I saw that at the yeah. back of the factory... Ron wasn't aware that you'd put the structure there that day, and he came into me and he said, who's the bloke working around the back on the scaffolding? And I said, that's not the scaffolding, that's the new drop test tower. Yeah, Go yeah. and speak to the technical boys. That's right, yeah. So we'd, we'd hoist this 780 kilo mass up with a, with a little carbon nose box under it. In fact, the first ones went flat as pancake. And in, and in fact, um, we first started doing it in 85, I think, uh, around the old factory at Boundary Road. And the first time we dropped, we just thought we'd drop, you know, for the hell of it, an existing 84-type nose box, an aluminium nose box. And <laughs> it literally it looked like a pizza box at the end. And it, it, <laughs> it, it, it cracked this concrete base. And even Bob Illman, I think, said, what the hell was that? When, you know, the other end of the factory, because the whole factory shook as it, as it hit. So we thought, hmm, this is going to need a bit of work. 
But uh, so the first carbon ones, you know, we were under pressure to make a carbon one work. And of course, that was a completely different method of getting the energy to be absorbed because you want carbon to turn to dust to make it absorb the energy. Oh, I see. Rather yeah. than aluminium, which folds up like yeah, a Coke yeah. can if you stand on it. So uh, it's a completely different mechanism for absorbing the energy. So under that sort of pressure through... November, December, January and February, I mean, did you get home for Christmas or were you actually working night well, and day? We, we had quite a few late nights and McDonald's got to know us quite well, I think, Stephen, <laughs> but, uh, in working. Mm. But it was intense, but it was really enjoyable as, as well. And I remember uh, late one night, um, Senna just came wandering into the office. I think, you know, uh, Steve, you were in your office and I was the other end of the office. It was just two or three of us there. And he just wandered in and started, you know, sat on the desk and started chatting. And he said, oh, do you want to come for a meal? And stupidly, I said, no, not really, a bit busy at the moment. But, uh, <laughs> you know, I'm kicking myself ever since. But, uh, but yeah, but those, those days, and going back to the actual design of the car, because the, the car evolved from the three. And Steve had, with the three, taken what JB had left him. And, and there were a number of things that could be done that, that Steve spotted that, uh, uh, you know, um, Barnard for some reason had uh, persisted with this V-shaped monocoque on the underside, which was a throwback to the, you know, the Grand Effect era where you wanted a narrow chassis and, and big narrow tunnels underneath. Um, and he persevered with that or kept that even for sort of three seasons later when, when the regulation had changed. So the first thing Steve did when he could was to actually s make the monocoque sides more slab-sided, sl uh, vertical, which had the advantage of increasing the torsional stiffness of the chassis oh, yeah. greatly. Yeah. Also, it put more fuel at a, uh, with a lower centre of gravity because you could get effectively more in at the base of the, of the chassis. And everything started coming down. Um, but you can see the evolution uh, from the three. In fact, if you look at some of these, these pictures uh, scrolling through, you'll see a three and the side pods, especially the back of the side pods uh, with the side exit radiators, were just virtually carried over from the three to the four. Yeah. Uh, and, the, yeah. and the front of the four was really dictated by the uh, foot regulation uh, and uh, the fuel tank size. There's a little story which you were telling me earlier um, about, you know, you always think about under pressure, the things that can go wrong and the yeah. things that you don't find out until it's almost too late and the uh, car's just about to go on the aeroplane. Yeah. You had a little problem with the steering, I think. Yeah, an interesting one. Um, it, it was thrilling as well at all that period as well. It was, we were under immense pressure because, you know, Imola was, uh, was looming and we realised we weren't going to make the beginning of the test. Um, and I think it was literally 10 days before we actually arrived at Imola, the, the actual first monocoque, well, actually it was the second one, because the first one was carted off to do its crash testing, so it was the second monocoque that was built first. And, but it wasn't in the car build area to be built as a, the first off new car uh, until 10 days, I think, before it, the car actually went off to Imola. So in that 10-day period, you know, Everybody, Ron, everybody was panicking because there was just nothing to look at. You know, we, we had a wooden sort of mock-up which looked the part but wasn't going to go far. Uh, and, uh, yeah, it was uh, intense. And then all of a sudden, all these pieces started arriving. 
And it was, you mentioned in the book, Steve, because uh, you'd see them go on and you think, oh, there's a car coming together, that's good. Looks like and then you go back after lunch and they'd be off again because they'd be, you know, that something else needed to happen to the bike. They were just drive fitting it or just making sure that, you know, it was going to work. So it was quite a frustrating process. But yes, the, um, in that 10 day period, I think it was just a few days before Imola, and uh, Ray Rowe, Tex, who's been at McLaren forever, so I think he's still there, and, and uh, uh, started with Bruce or, you know, shortly afterwards. Um, he wandered up to the drawing office, and, and normally, you get, normally I'd get worried when I get a call from somebody like Gary Walker, who was the, building the car, and if you got a phone call at your desk that says, uh, have you got a minute? <laughs> he knew that that was a big one. <laughs> Um, but anyway, Tex wandered in, and you don't often see Tex wandering into the drawing office. And he had the new steering rack assembly with pinion, and he was fiddling with the pinion in the rack, shuttling it back and forwards. And, and he came in, I was with Steve in his office, and, and he said, um, um, Guys, I've been, I've been playing with this for about an hour or so now. He said, You do realise that when the driver turns right, the car's going to go left. <laughs> <laughs> And Steve and I looked at each other, and I was thinking, oh, Christ, you know, because uh, Tex, you know, he's been there forever, he, he, he's seen it all, he doesn't make mistakes, and if we've made a mess of it just a few days before the car's due to run, there's no way you can get recover from that, you know, the car wouldn't run. So, unbeknown to Tex, fortunately, <laughs> the first time ever in his experience, we'd put the rack and pinion assembly in front of the front wheel axle line, instead of behind, which is traditionally where they always were. And of course, when you do that, you, the pinion has to be on the, the other side. And the wheels go the other direction. Yep. Yeah. A few more grey hairs. <laughs> yeah. So, yes, that was um, interesting. <laughs> anyway, you, you, you did get to the last day of that five-day test. And I think it was ten days before the cars mm. were due to be in Brazil to, to do the first run. Um, presumably... You have a brand new car, <clears throat> and presumably every team is in the same situation. You've built your car all over the winter. You get to this first test, and I know it's different these days with simulators and so on, but you arrive there, and you don't actually know whether you're going to be two seconds quicker than everybody else or two seconds slower than everybody else. No, and Steve tells this story better, so I'll pass it over to him, but it, <laughs> there's the additional thinking of you know, are the pull rods going to rip the front suspension out of the monocoque and those things like that as they hurtle through Tamburello. So there's, there's a lot riding on it, just never mind whether the car's quick or not. You know, if it stays in one piece, it's quite a result, I think. But, uh, well, Steve, tell yeah. us what it was like, that, well, that getting to that, that one day that you got in at Imola. You know, you, you mentioned about uh, things being intense and things being stressful. Um, I guess I, I was interviewed once and they were asking me, what's the most stressful time in Formula One? You know, sort of meaning qualifying, race, whatever. And I said, well, for me, it was 1981 to 2001. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, yeah, it's intense. And, and that period, for the reasons I've stated previously, August to, to February, March sort of time, it, it had just been so intense. And, uh, and most nights would end it. Well, as Matthew alluded to, most nights for me it ended at 10.45 because it meant I could get to McDonald's and get a burger before they closed. Um, so when we, uh, we finally got the car screwed together and arrived at Imola and we, we got to the hotel late that night, 
And the Japanese were there. And this one very stern uh, higher up of the Japanese organization said to so me. So you say the Japanese, you mean the Japanese from Honda? Honda, yes. Right. Yeah. Um, so he looked at me with the inscrutable sort of look and, and said to me, So tomorrow we find out about your wonder car. <laughs> and I thought, Good God, what's Ron been selling to these people? But um, <laughs> So that's the first time I'd ever, because it had been so intense, that's the first time I had ever really had time to stop and think, you know, is it going to be any good or not? Will it be a babe or will it be a bitch? And, uh, <laughs> so anyway, the next morning, a very pressurized situation, and Anna was first in the car, and we had him do the typical... Uh, uh, installation lap and they had a look and everything was all right as it always is and uh, then I said well maybe just do four or five gentle laps see how it goes really trying to put off the inevitable I suppose and so he did four or five laps and came in and once again everything was all right so I sort of took a deep breath and said well go for it so he left again and uh you're all probably familiar with the Imola circuit, but you come around that last chicane and he exited the right-hander, buried the throttle and just disappeared off towards Tamburello. And I was <laughs> like that. You know, as Matthew mentioned, the front suspension was a little unusual. The loads were quite high. And somehow I had this image of it, as he says, just ripping the whole side of the monocoque up. Anyway, appeared around... Uh, completed the lap, it was all all right. He, he did a few timed runs, we, we made a few adjustments, you know, nothing too spectacular. And, and uh, it was all all right, and it was, it was blindingly fast, I suppose. And well, I mean, that's surely the point. I mean, firstly, the car hadn't fallen to pieces. Yeah, yeah. But secondly, it was very quick. Well, it was very, very fast, and, uh, and early days for the car, of course. And, and um, uh, we only had the one day, and um, so I think it was lunchtime we changed yeah. over. Well, you, you, sorry, th do you remember Joe Ramirez saying that when Alan hopped out, he pulled Joe aside and he, he said, well, first he said, we can win the World Championship with this yeah. car. And the second thing he said was, tell Ayrton just to go a little bit under what he can do, because we don't want to give the game away. <laughs> Which he ignored. <laughs> of course, well, absolutely. I, I don't know, maybe, maybe that was his idea of taking it yeah. easy, but uh, he got in the car for the afternoon. We didn't do many changes in the afternoon. I, I just said, you know, we need to get a few laps on the car, so just go round and round. He went that, a little faster than just, I just, uh, uh, Was that MP441? Was that, was that the, the, the test car? I mean, or was that one of the two cars you took to Brazil? Oh, one of the two cars. Yeah, it was actually two. chassis two, I think. It was chassis two, for yeah. the reason Matthew mentioned earlier. But then the other car was completed, and those were the, the two that went to Brazil. But, well, I yeah. suppose now we've got to say, you, I mean, this season where there was this string of firsts and seconds and everything was so dominating, actually, <coughs> when you got to Brazil for that first race... You won the race, but it didn't actually go quite according to plan, did it? Well, <laughs> yeah, I mean, we'd finished off at, uh, at Imola, you know, Senna driven the car, and Matthew told you, Prost reaction. Senna was similar. He went out and did his first, you know, 
three or four time lapse and came in and he just sat there for maybe 30 seconds, you know, looked sort of stunned. And then he just said, this car is going to be blankety blank quick. <laughs> and, uh, and so it turned out. Um, we, uh, we went off to Brazil and there were two problems there really. We, we had altered the setup a little bit, um, thinking that we understood the car better and, and uh, correcting a perceived mistake. And it wasn't as good. And he was saying, well, what's different? And so I said, well, it, you know, the pull rod length was a little bit different in, in Imola. And he said, go back. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. so we did that, and then the car was much yeah. better. But of course, uh, what happened to Ayrton in the, in the race was there was a little machining error in the, in the forward part of the gear selector mechanism. So that broke, uh, which was the problem there. And so he had to hop out of that car, hop in the T car, and then of course he was disqualified for From changing, changing cars. Changing cars, uh, yeah. To, to yeah, absolutely. The yeah. Prost went on to. to it's uh, it's very tempting to go through the entire season because every race has a story, every race has lots of stories, and it is very well covered, I may say, in the book, which does go through every race of the 88 season. But I'd like to ask Richard this, because there was this extraordinary moment at Monaco, and we, there is a slide that comes round occasionally where you can see uh, Ayrton Senna dominating the race, Alain Prost, his teammate, in second place and not going to threaten him, the Monaco Grand Prix in his pocket, 12 laps to go, and the great Ayrton Senna flings it into the barriers and is so horror-struck by what he do he's done that he leaps out of the car. He had an apartment at Monaco then, just got out of the car and disappeared, just went back to his apartment without speaking to anybody. Now, from your point of view, that must have been kind of a difficult situation because there's this wonderful McLaren 1-2 going on. There's Monaco, which is about the most publicly high-profile race in the calendar. Your star, who's been leading the race, has gone storming off to his apartment. You can't get hold of him, and presumably people want to know what's going on and what has happened. It was a bit more complicated than that, Simon, because um, <laughs> at the start of the year, Ron called me into the office with Peter Burns, who worked in marketing, and he said, everybody has boats at Monaco, don't they? I said, well, you know they do, you know, because we go on them. He said, I want a ship there. And Peter Burns went off with Ron to Norway, and if you've ever seen, if you look online, you'll see Sea Goddess 1 and Sea Goddess 2. I mean, obviously, they're old ships now, but at the time, they were the two luxury ships. And Not boats, ships. No, ships. <laughs> and they had 68 cabins, and Ron's vision for Monaco 88 was that we would charter Sea Goddess, I think it was 250 grand for five days. One of them was a Monday, so seven of us got to use it on Monday, which was pretty good. <laughs> I won't go into that in too much detail. But um, we got this thing, and it was so big that it jutted out of the old Monaco Harbour. And we put a, a complete programme together, and we invited 60 of the best couples from all of our existing sponsorship portfolio. And in there were about 10 couples who had the power to sign very large cheques. We had the Viennese Symphonic Orchestra on the rear deck on Friday evening for a champagne reception with everybody in black tie. We had the drivers, we had a full presentation, we invited other teams' drivers on board, and this thing was super, super luxurious. So the build-up to the race day on Sunday was the cabin back, we're about the size of this room. We had a huge TV monitor with live TV, 
I was doing a live commentary on the race. The guests had all had champagne. They'd had night after night of fabulous entertainment. And there we were. And, there, and I shall never forget the mortal words. And I've never used them in motor racing again. It's only 12 laps to go till we get another one too. <laughs> And at that point, we turned over to the live commentary and there was Ayrton stuck between the barriers. You saw the picture up there a few minutes ago. It was very, very difficult because even though we went on and won the race, we were in that position where we appeared in front of this massive audience that we had of these very powerful and influential people. We appeared fallible. And up until that point, we hadn't appeared fallible in 88 at all. And, of course, with Ayrton going off, Joe Ramirez went off, the team coordinator at that time, Joe, great Joe Ramirez, went off and Ayrton went to ground. I mean, he was, he was deeply, deeply sh shaken. But he was in a strange place that weekend anyway, that qualifying lap that he did, you know, when the times kept coming up. Joe's been on YouTube and talked about it a lot. I think all of us, when we started looking at them, at one point Hogan said to me, you know, because in those days Olivetti provided those little timing screens, and uh, John Hogan said to me, look at that. He said, there's Italian reliability for you. And he started tapping the screen when Ayrton's time started coming up. And we suddenly realised they were real. And that remarkable thing, he said, I, you know, I went to another place and I stepped out of myself and I saw myself racing. Rah, rah, rah. He was different that weekend. And A, it took a lot of explaining to the guests. But B, I think also within the team, again, Ron had to use his many, many skills in managing Ayrton at times. But it fortunately didn't repeat itself, other than when we got turfed off at Monza, of course, by Louis Lesser. Yeah. Well, that, that was interesting, actually, at Spa that weekend, because if I recall, um, uh, Senna was on pole by seven-tenths of a second, and not seven-tenths of a second over just anybody, seven-tenths quicker than Alain Prost, who's yeah. very, very... That's quick a big in his own right, <coughs> and uh, and also it demonstrates the tremendous respect that um, Ayrton had for uh, Alain. In the you know he was in the lead by a long way. Prost was in third, and as soon as as uh, Alain overtook and and was second, even though he had a huge lead, uh, Senna put himself, knowing it was Prost in second place, he put himself under under so much pressure that he eventually fell off. That's extraordinary because with 12 laps to go, there is no way that, uh, that Alan Prost would have caught him. I mean, that, psychologically, that is fascinating because it shows how Ayrton's mind worked. That he, if, if he'd been, and I, I guess if Alan Prost had been in the same situation, <coughs> he would have been much cooler about the whole thing. He would have said, well, got all this sorted, keep the car on the road, get to the checkered flag. But Ayrton was different in that way, wasn't he? Well, uh, they're interesting characters and, and um, Ayrton was, uh, he was, he was quite emotional. He was mm. quite sort of, you know, he had a, a certain a sort of a Latin warmth or, or mm. whatever. I used to think about him and Alain were kind of the inverse of each other. Uh, um, Ayrton had this hard exterior uh, which he presented to his competitors, which he ex presented to the press and, and generally to the world. But to people like me who knew him quite closely and people like me who were important to him and to enhance his performance, uh, he was much more gentle and soft and really? grateful and that sort of thing. And Alain was kind of the opposite. He had sort of a soft, cuddly exterior, but underneath that, 
he was hard as steel. Mm. Uh, both of them, inevitably, even though they were inverse of each other, just incredibly mm. competitive. Did they ever appear um, in the factory? I mean, put mm. that into context. One of you, you mentioned earlier about Ayrton turning up one evening and mm. sort of having a chat. Um, going back half a century, uh, one of the ways in which Sterling Moss used to reckon he could get a little advantage over his teammate was in January and February and March. Just make sure he dropped in at mm. five o'clock in the evening, see all the chaps working, how's it all going, that sort of thing. And the only reason why he did it, not just because he's a nice guy, because he thought, maybe I can get an extra, in some immeasurable way, there's a sort of another tenth of a second here. Did, did either Alain or... Um, or, or Ayrton get close to the guys back at the factory? Um, not, not in that way. They didn't sort of pop in regularly. They, ca they came in uh, when they needed to be there, obviously when the new car was being built and we needed to get them into the mock-up to get their driving position sorted out. Mm. But both were really, really fussy about every little detail mm. about how they were sitting and, and the clearances and... and things that would worry them, that, can we just move this by, you know, sort of a couple of millimetres or whatever. And, but they're, they're really intense. Um, but, and what tended to happen was that they'd, they'd make a seat and they'd make the first seat for the test. And then after they'd driven the car in anger, the, the, they'd realise it wasn't quite right. So you'd be, you knew you'd be making another one fairly quickly after that. Yes. And hopefully not too many more after that because mm. it would settle down. But uh, no, they... Um, they didn't come round sort of independently of each other, sort of trying to make sure that we were giving them what they wanted. Right. They trusted us. but uh, yeah. And you didn't go to the races. You, you were very much operating yeah. at the factory. So what happened at the weekends? I mean, did you just go and turn on BBC well, TV? Yeah, and it's, that's an interesting point. And I, and I think for me, you know, it's obviously one of the, you know, career highlights for me, you know, a golden period uh, of, of, of my life. And it, it's uh, uh, interesting, I, I think, because McLaren, and I know Amanda's here, you, you know, and I know she's very proud of, of uh, her father starting the, the mm -hmm. team, but um, we all were, we all felt that McLaren was a little bit special because it had a very family feel to it. And it's interesting you say Sundays, you know, you, you, as a, as a non-race-going member of the team, those of us who, uh, who stayed back at the factory, and a number of those people are here today, tonight, um, really felt that you were part of something which was more than just a workplace. It was, you know, it was something special. And when you went home and watched the race on the television, there was a pride because, it, you know, you kind of felt that uh, you'd, you'd say to your kids, you know, there's, there's daddy's car on the television. Whoever did what, whether it was a cleaner or a designer or whatever, whoever they were, they, they, they felt a pride in, in being part of that. And, and, you know, I think McLaren has, uh, throughout the eras, right from the start, and, you know, with Bruce and, and through Teddy and, and with Ron, it, it, uh, it maintained this family feel, which was very special, it still is. This is a good moment to ask you about the Chinese restaurant story. Yeah. Because the, uh, what you have to understand, ladies and gentlemen, is that the domination of McLaren was absolutely extraordinary. And, and 
the big news on Monday morning or on Sunday afternoon when we seen it on television, I was lucky enough to be there talking about it, the big news would not be that McLaren had finished first or second, because that's well, first and second, as it usually was. But it would be big news if for some reason McLaren had failed. And there was only one race in the entire season when mm. both McLarens failed. And Matthew yeah. has an idea about why this happened. Yes, because you it, all used to work, can you all used explained. to eat at the yeah. Chinese restaurant. Don't tell it, us it, well, it was a story that my colleague Dave Nielsen uh, reminded me of um, for the book, actually. And uh, the quotes that from him are in the book. But um, being non-travelling, uh, you know, the drawing office personnel traditionally went to the Chinese restaurant in Woking for, on a Friday lunchtime. Um, and it became a traditional kind of thing. And, and after a while, after the results started coming in, we kind of associated going to the Chinese restaurant with the carding, or, you know, the race results being quite... Okay. <laughs> and it came into sharp focus uh, because on the Friday before Monza, we didn't go. <laughs> So there it is. It all went wrong. It, it, just a little bit more about this team spirit thing, because, I mean, a lot of... I, perhaps, Richard, I bring you in here. Because, Actually, can I just mention... Sorry, yeah, sorry yeah, very quickly. Um, the, the, something was pointed out to me and, and um, Steve when we, we had a meeting for the book uh, about a year ago, and something that Rick Goodhand, one of the mechanics at the time, um, said, which we hadn't really taken on board, but was really interesting to hear was the fact that after a while the, the race team and the mechanics knew that the car was good and they knew that they were potentially going to win the race you know and it's only going to be if the mechanics screwed up in some way if they didn't and they were really increasingly under pressure to ensure that they made no mistakes so I think you know they need to be recognized for for the achievements as, as well. I think it was more than that, though, Simon. Coming back to your question there, because when you when I first started at McLaren, we were at Boundary Road, mid '84, with Nicky and Alan. And I remember this first week I was there, and those of you in the audience from McLaren and these guys remember. And there was a guy called Arthur, and Arthur had always had a white coat on, and Arthur always had a tin of emulsion paint, the paintbrush in his hand. And literally, you'd see him all day long walking around the factory, and the slightest mark on this old corrugated roof building where there were 72 of us, you know, winning a world championship, he'd be touching out marks on the wall. If somebody had scraped something, chipped something, marked anything, it was being touched up. And when we went to the new factory, which was marketed as the Orange Bowl, which infuriated Ron, because it was the Jag McLaren Centre, but... That place was absolutely immaculate. There wasn't a single motor racing picture. We had modern art on all of the walls. And a few people who joined us as we grew, when they first came, they weren't quite McLarenistas, you know. They were, they were newbies. And one of them stopped me one day and he said, what is it with you guys on the race team? You know, you've always got new trainers. You always look this, you do that. The factory looks like an art museum. And I said, listen, it takes you a while to get it. But when you get it, you understand what a fantastic place you're working for. What an amazing group of people. Tonight, a couple of people I haven't seen here for like 12, 15 years. It's not good God, you know, you've got fat, you've gone grey and all the rest of it. It's, hey, how are you doing? How's your shooting going? You immediately are back in that mould that that McLaren family had in that period. And in fact, Matthew and I, five, nearly six years ago, organised a reunion, an unofficial reunion. Uh, down at Goodwood. We had nearly 325 people, including the McLaren family who flew from New Zealand and Patty was there and others. And you know what? It was, it was like being in a room of no other 
situation, TWR Jaguar, twice at Williams, British Touring Cars, that I've been through, nothing like it at all. And it's still true to this day. You talk to anybody who has been through the glory years and that incredible period of McLaren's history, and you knew you were part of something special. Mm. I've got two pictures on the wall in my office. I've got my signed picture to me from Ayrton when we signed him at Williams and took him away from McLaren in September 1993. And I've got my McLaren business card in a black frame that's the size of a swan matchbox. Mm. And if ever I'm working on a project or a piece that challenges me, I look at that business card and remind myself of what it takes to get it done. And that's how passionate we all are about the place. But uh, there's, a <clears throat> there's a fascinating mix which, um, I mean, it's, it's like you have two ingredients. You have this extraordinary team spirit, mm. which I guess goes back to when McLaren was five people in a, a, a store that had an earth floor and was actually a store for earth-moving equipment, which is where McLaren started. Um, and, and you had that spirit, but you certainly didn't at that stage have modern art on the walls or Arthur touching up, uh, touching up the, the paintwork. Uh, now you've got McLaren in this kind of stainless steel cathedral uh, and it's however many thousand people working there. And I wonder whether that, that extraordinary spirit, which must have been quite easy to generate when you had five people starting a brand new team under Bruce, who was obviously the most charismatic of motivators, it must be so different now. And I mean, you understand so well you know Ron very well. I wonder whether the McLaren spirit, they haven't been winning Grand Prix recently, for heaven's sake. I wonder if that wonderful spirit that you've all mm. mentioned is still there among the stainless steel cathedral. I, I've got a little bit of a theory on that, which, uh, you know, we could talk all night about the current McLaren arrangement of things. But I noticed, and I, I've, I've bored these two enough, you know, over the years with my theories. But I was, I think, number seven in the in the uh, drawing office uh, when I graduated and joined John Barnard and What Steve, year was that? 84. Right. And uh, I had noticed, when we grew, when, when we used to go down to the pub on a Friday night, even though not the Chinese in those days, but we went to the, to the pub. And when you, there's a small group of people uh, who get on well and work well together, uh, and there's no sort of infighting or ego or I want to do this and you know and that it's it's very refreshing to, to be in it. it's partly uh, by chance that that happens but you know you can cultivate it to some degree but when I noticed when we got to about 12 or 13 it the, it naturally subdivided into two groups of six say and one group would go to the pub and the other group wouldn't and whereas and I think in nature and in, in other sports and the RAF with squadrons and things, I think there's a reason why you have a manageable team of 12 people or so. Mm. Because as you grow, uh, all of a sudden you have more people to manage and then you lose uh, designers and you get, you, you lose good designers and you get poor managers after, mm. after you know, if you're not careful. Uh, and I think that I mean, as I say, I was number seven in 1984. When I left in 2005, I was, there were 120 people in the drawing office. Oh. 
So I'm effectively still doing the same thing of putting out two cards for every race. Although you weren't using pencil and paper. No, no. Uh, but it was, it's the depth at which you have to drill down into to, to extract. So how, how to maintain... I mean, you do a lot of work in motivation and management. Yeah. That, that's, a, that's a wonderful... Um, sort of metaphor there you, you you were seven people and then you were you said 120 yeah um how do you keep that extraordinary let's call it the mclaren spirit because that's how we've mentioned it how, how can you keep that going when you're an enormous organization there's a I, mark gallagher who was the press officer for jordan grand prix uh, you remember mark very well mark yeah. now does quite a bit of public speaking and he quoted an American um, business strategist in one of his articles recently in Autosport, Peter Drucker. And Drucker uh, was one of the great business strategists of the world. And when he was, you know, flying high, he made a statement. He said, culture eats strategy for breakfast. And keeping a culture in a large organisation is extremely difficult. When I worked at Williams, when I went back there in 92, for the 93 season, we were still at the middle factory in the shadows of the power station at Didcot, we were 127 people. And, you know, to get to Frank's office, you had to walk past Patrick and Adrian Newey's office, you had to walk past the accounts team, you had to walk past us in marketing and press and PR, and you had to walk past the gents' toilet. So everybody was continually up and down, and at the bottom of the stairs was the canteen and the free tea machine and the free coffee. So you had this incredible feeling like we had, not as strong as I sensed it at McLaren, but at Williams we had this same scenario where somebody would walk upstairs to go to the loo or get some expenses or get a cup of tea and they'd say, oh, by the way, Rich, do you know, by the way, the test truck's back a day early. And Patrick would be going past and I'd say, Patrick, do you know the test truck's back a day early? And the communication within the business was very informal within a formalised safety and performance structure. When the Williams team, and I think it's true of McLaren possibly and some of the people in the audience still work there today, what I found was when we moved the Williams facility from the middle of Didcot to the current home at Grove, and we went from 130 odd people, some very odd people on occasions, um, to nearly 500 people. Frank said to me one day, who are these people? I said, well, they work for you, Frank. He said, yeah, but what do they do? And, <laughs> and he didn't mean that disrespectfully. He didn't know what they did. And I think what Matthew is referring to, and certainly when I used to go down to the drawing office, you know, in the days when Barnard was there, you know, you always put a tin helmet on in case JB was having one of his infamous moments. But you would all know each other. And I think when you look at some of the organisations today, Mercedes seem to control it extremely well with the team there. But when you get that many people, communication becomes absolutely critical. And in the modern age, people have substituted text and WhatsApp and email and all the other communication mediums for actually what is called a conversation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's a really big thing. When Steve was talking, Matthew were talking earlier about the deadline to get to Imola and then to Brazil, when the car was stickered up, these guys were going absolutely ballistic because the base car with no stickers on it in one piece was in the workshop. There's a picture of it there. George Langhorn just finished painting and his guys, all the panels on it. And Ron came out to sticker the car. Mm. But everybody else didn't go home. You know, Ron would get the car all stickered up like that model there and we'd look at it and go, that's nice. And I bet go, Ron got all the stickers absolutely He literally straight. would say, no, 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 that boss one, I need that moved down a third of a millimetre, you know, and that, that Marlborough one needs to... And I'm not being flippant, you know, he was like that. Oh, George, can you get a curved Tag Heuer sticker made for the screen? Because actually, if you put a flat one on, it won't look right. Make a curve one, it'll look the same as the screen. And we would all stay and we would all watch it happen. Mm. 
these guys would be getting really frantic because they wanted to get the car, you know, on the transport and away to the test or the you race. Four o'clock in the morning. Four o'clock in the morning. Yeah, <laughs> thanks for reminding us. And literally, we would all be there. Mm. You don't see that today. Well, to, to bring Steve back in, uh, I mean, you spent, uh, once, once you left America and Hercules, you spent your working life in Formula One. Would you like to work in Formula One today? Um, yeah, I guess I would. Um, you know, the opportunities don't present themselves, but it's what I always wanted to do. Um, way back in the early 60s, I started uh, racing a kart and uh, started paying attention to Formula One in 1962. Uh, 62? Yeah. Oh, when pretty early. The, what caught my attention, actually, our, our window on the Formula One world then was Road and Track magazine. And there was an article in there called Chapman's Tubeless Wonder, and it was the Lotus 25. Lotus 25 and, uh, yeah. So I decided then that I wanted to... Yeah. First monocoque. Yeah. Mm. Well, the I first monocoque uh, in Formula One. Yes, yeah, right. Before right. we get to... Airplanes and things <laughs> yeah, like yeah, that. Absolutely, yeah. yeah, I was, uh, I was a bit... Uh, uh, fascinated by that car and decided then that I wanted to be a, a Formula One designer so proceeded to uh, do that. So you, you actually had your eyes set on, on a Formula One ambition from 1962? Yeah, yeah, so I tailored my education accordingly and tried to make appropriate moves wow. to try to get there but for a country I, I boy up in the Rocky Mountains it, it was a hard Task to I, I try to find, say, um, find your way into Formula you, One. You, you did get that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I still find it quite fascinating from the uh, technical side. It's an interesting technical exercise these days, even if it's dead boring in terms of the racing. But you know, yeah. But do, do, you, do you turn on the television? Do you, I mean, you've obviously still got some wonderful contacts in Formula One. Well, go to the races. Uh, the last time, I, I'd have to say that. Um, yeah, I can't help myself from watching the races but typically I fall asleep after about the fifth lap and <laughs> if I'm lucky I wake up for the finish uh, sometimes not till the interviews and I have to <laughs> rewind but uh, two or three years ago we went, we went to um, uh, it's the only time I've been to a modern race we went to uh, Singapore mm. my friend Anthony Hancock uh, was racing his uh, his, his son was uh, driving his uh, Fittipaldi uh, Formula One car, and, uh, and we won both those races there, which was quite good. And, but I was standing there for the for the real Formula One race in the last corner, thinking, well, at least I won't fall asleep. But I was leaning up against a railing there and did fall asleep standing up. So, yeah. <laughs> so I kind of wish they'd do something to. Uh, Make the racing more uh, interesting. But I mean, do joking apart, uh, you're falling asleep in front of the television, and I mean, you are and have spent your life being part of Formula One. What about all the great unwashed there? They're falling asleep as well. That's, Formula that's, One has a problem. Yeah, obviously. that's that's probably probably true. I mean, I was, I was talking to Ross Braun, who now obviously has a a, a serious role in Formula One to try and improve. Formula One as a technical spectacle. Yeah. And he said one of the problems they've got <clears throat> is that empty grandstands don't look good on television. They go to these races in the Far East and the Middle East and there's nobody there. 
and they're now working on a way of painting people on the grandstands so that it looks a bit better on the telly. I mean, Richard, there's a problem, isn't there? Yeah, there is, but I, I, I don't think it's as simple as people make out. I, Steve and I and Matthew were talking about this when we were having a bite to eat before we came in. And Steve's got some very interesting views on, you know, how to make the cars more competitive, better overtaking, less aero, etc. But I also think, you, you, you know, Liberty and Ross, it's strange hearing Ross talk about the fans because, you know, for 30 years he's only concentrated on the technical side and now he's positioned almost as somebody that is trying to produce a product for the fan. The fan has changed dramatically. The, the age of social media has changed things dramatically. But I'm probably going to get pilloried for saying this, but I truly believe it. We don't have... People are too manicured now. The drivers are very young. They're brought on from the age of three and four years of age. Some of them have gone right the way through all their training schools. They're politically correct. They're probably a modern-day PR or sponsor's man's dream because they do exactly as they're told to do within the corporate environment. But, you know, I have to say it. When Nelson Piquet jumped out of his Brabham, grabbed hold of Nelson, um, Elisio Salazar and punched him in the gravel trap for taking him off, that was great TV. It was great television. And I certainly wouldn't ever want to go back to an era where there was danger, having lived through, as I did as a member of the Williams team, the loss of Roland on the Saturday and then Ayrton on the Sunday. I would never, ever want anybody to have to go through that. It's the most appalling thing. But I just feel we need some fire back in the people that are there in the cars. And we need... People, as Steve was saying earlier, engineers to be allowed to sit down and discuss engineering practices that is not controlled by somebody who's trying to control the overall show. Because if you leave the engineers together, they know full well that the public want to see very close racing. Um, no disrespect to Steve and Matthew, because we're great buddies, but when they get together and talk technical, they don't put their commercial hat on. The 87 season was a great example. We, we, know, we, we got all that extra money out of Philip Morris and then Steve, Matthew and the team decided to have radiator ducts that if you took them out the side of the car, put more air in, but it completely took the word Marlboro off the side of the car. That was great value. You can imagine <laughs> we, what Marlboro had to say we, about that. We did quite enjoy making life difficult for... I know you did, you know, That's why we had those, you know, what comes first, the car or the marketing. But the truth of the matter is, I think, with Formula One today, I think it, there's a lot to be learnt from what we had before and Steve made a very good point to me earlier he said listen when you consider what it costs to run a Formula One team it's really not that expensive to give people unlimited tyres for qualifying like we used to have yeah. we used to put 28 cars out on the grid at Monaco for one hour with unlimited tyres and unlimited boost that was qualifying yeah. Yeah. that was proper qualifying and I know I sound like an old git but everybody went oh yeah, yeah. I, <laughs> right, I look back that just probably all meant I'm an old git but actually when you think back to those qualifying sessions although the footage is not very good just go on YouTube and spend an hour one rainy afternoon and just take a look at a manual gearbox Formula One car in the hands of Nigel Mansell Ricardo Patrese Ayrton you know, you can keep going, Nelson Piquet, with unlimited tyres in qualifying in Monaco and through the swimming pool complex, it was just electrifying. You couldn't turn the TV off. And that's where I think we've lost it. You know, we've got... My oldest son is in motor racing and he was manufacturing the moulds for Red Bull and for Mercedes at one point to make these front wings, you know, with the sort of 20 aero strips on them. And he said, Dad, you know, the infinitesimal engineering that goes into that nobody actually sees it what we actually want to see is those wonderful power sliding moments and the brave stuff like when the sparks used to fly through Eau Rouge and I think if we brought some of the simple things back 
courtesy of the engineers. Mm. I think Formula One, as an entertainment and highly technical medium, would be in a much better place than it is at the moment. When you talk about the engineers, <laughs> say say all of us, uh, engineers getting together. I mean, something else that I think has changed about modern Formula One is that, I mean, when I first started covering Formula One as a commentator, you would sit on a rather cheap aeroplane flying to, it might be Japan or it might be Lisbon or wherever, and on the same aeroplane were not only the horrible unwashed journalists like me, the mechanics, the team bosses, there might be Frank Williams arguing with Colin Chapman about something, and it was probably nothing to do with motor racing, up at the front. And it was this little circus going round, and everybody knew everybody. And maybe by the mid-'80s, it was somewhat more professional than that, and Ron and co. had their private aeroplanes. But now, do the teams communicate with each other? Is that the same sort of camaraderie? I think, prob I think probably much much less, but mm. uh, but I don't know for sure. I haven't uh, been involved for a while, but but I know I mean, what you mean. How did you get on with um, with the chaps from Williams or the chaps? Yeah, from yeah, Ryan? quite, quite. Well, I, I know a little bit what you mean. You know, because inevitably there would be certain flights that you'd be taking to uh, particularly long distance races. You know, there were certain flights and and a lot of the team members would end up in the same airport lounge and on the same flights, and, and inevitably we'd talk. And of course, with the engineers, um, you know, in the pit lane, the um, uh, late at night, the mechanics would be crafting as usual, and and the uh, the engineers would be lounging, I suppose, and, uh, waiting for it to all be finished. And uh, and we would inevitably walk up and down the pit lane and chat with the other engineers. And, mm. So there was a, was a camaraderie fun. and, yeah. you know, you'd have interesting <coughs> discussions. Now, I've been very lucky because I've been able to ask all the questions for almost an hour and a half. Um, and I think we've got a microphone or two somewhere in the, in the room. If any of you, ladies and gentlemen, have got any questions you'd like to throw at Steve, Matthew or Richard, we've got a hand up already yeah, over there. Uh, can I just say, first of all, what a fascinating conversation. Gentlemen, thank you very much. Indeed. I, I, can't, I can't believe an hour and a half has gone, so marvellous. Thank you. Right, any questions? Yes, sir. I've got two, actually. Um, Only one. Well, no, one was just a point. Say about uh, Senna in the Monaco 88. I think what was on his mind was Monaco 84. And where his position was then, when he drove for Tolman. <laughs> Just say again, sorry, the question about. I, yeah, I think I understand what you mean. Um, what was what was sorry? I, I didn't hear that clearly. The when Ayrton drove in in eighty four in the Tolman. Yes, because the race was stopped when they threw the flag. Jackie Hicks yeah, yeah, threw the yeah. flag, flag yeah. at half distance. And yeah, I I was working for Williams then, and I'd, I'd been given the job of doing pit board. And pit board in those days, you stood between the two rows of Armco and the concrete at your back. And you were sticking the board out lap after lap, and of course it rained harder and harder and harder. Personally, and I, this is only my own view, but yes, the conditions were bad, but there was certainly, um, I think there was an element of politics when the flag got thrown. Exactly. That's yeah. my own belief yeah. always. But I mean, Ayrton, again, in those conditions, long before he was credited with the skills, you know, that he latterly had before his demise, 
it was clear then he was in a different class. Even in not a very competitive car? Oh, that car was not an easy car to drive, I don't think, in, that, in those days, by any stretch of the imagination. You could say that was the first kind of political confrontation between Prost and Senna, because I remember Prost in the lead coming past at Monaco, pointing up at the sky, yeah. pointing at exactly. the, yeah, yeah. the race director, but it also you've got to stop it. It went right the way to the last race at Estoril when we had the 1-2, of course, and Steve and um, Alan Jenkins, the other engineer who was there on, on the McLaren team, Prost lost the world championship by half a point. Yeah. Right, we've got another question over right, here. Right, we've got another question. We mustn't start talking here and answering our own questions. Steve, Matthew and Richard, great to have you along. Just a, a question about the 16th race that we didn't win. It's been mentioned briefly here, but can you tell us what it was like as a team when that loss occurred and any outcomes that may have come from it? Um, well, I thought that it was wonderful, actually, because it would give the future generation something to shoot for, a perfect season. <laughs> uh, uh, well, no, actually, it was a bit disappointing, <laughs> as you can imagine. At the time, I thought, you know, I had always thought through that year that, you know, we're not going to win all the races. Inevitably, something will happen. You know, somebody will be a little more competitive. Uh, a driver will make a mistake, we'll have a mechanical failure if those two things come together in the same race, you know. So so I thought it had uh, an element of uh, inevitability about it, and although disappointing, you know. It was, it's yeah. more disappointing at the end of the year, wasn't it? When you look back and know that that was one. Yeah, yeah, I mean, at the time, you thought, well, that's one loss, but yeah. when it turned out to be the only loss, it, it made it yeah. so okay, more difficult to handle. Just, just, just real quickly on the previous question, you have to remember that, that uh, Prost in the lead wanted to protect that, and quite a conservative person. Uh, Senna in second, you know, uh, more of a risk taker and wanting to be first, so naturally he wanted to be continued. But you also have to remember that Stefan Beloff in behind was uh, was catching both of them so yeah, yeah. it's not inevitable that that, uh, that Senate would have won Beloff might have. I, I must say if, if Stefan Beloff hadn't been killed I think we would probably be talking about him mm. in the same kind of hushed tones yes, that I we think, talk about yeah, Ayrton Senate. Sure. Yeah, we've got any more questions here, please? Just on the last point about Mons I think it was um, Nigel Mansell's chicken pox that was really responsible because if he hadn't had that I don't think Slesser would have been in the car but anyway um, the um, <laughs> That's an interesting point. The, the question I had about was actually about the advantage you had over that 88 season, which I think was right from the beginning of the season. I think Paddy Lowe said he was at Williams at the time and he couldn't believe the numbers that he was seeing from the, from the four when it turned up in testing. So in these days, you'd expect to see protests or at least suspicion of cheating or some technical advantage loophole. Did you get any unofficial or official oh, investigations? Yeah. There, the there was a hell of a lot of that. Uh, official, unofficial from... From the FIA, from uh, from the other teams, and and particularly from Lotus, who just could not believe that a bunch of no names had come up with a car that was so much quicker than theirs with the same engine. You need to mention at Monaco, they actually. Yeah, yeah. Well, we did have a big advantage, and 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 significantly, we had an advantage uh, over Lotus, and um, you know the Lotus felt that we must be cheating in, in some way. Um, and so at Monza... Monaco. Sorry, yes, uh, Monaco. Um, Honda used to select the engines. They'd try to select what they felt would be the most reliable engines for the race. 
you know, maybe a little bit better blow-by characteristics or whatever, and they'd give us the most powerful engines uh, for qualifying. So uh, Honda came to us and, and said that uh, Lotus felt that they were giving us uh, preferential treatment and they wanted to know if they could use our qualifying engines for Lotus to use in the race. So, you know, we said, well, they're your engines, uh, do what you like. So they took the qualifying engines out of our cars and put them in the Lotuses for the race. And, well, the result's history, I suppose. What happened? I've got uh, another um, question behind me here. Yeah. All right. Um, Steve uh, uh, and the team, really, looking at the car, it's relatively simple from an aerodynamic point of view. Um, so what proportion of the car would you attribute to aerodynamics versus mechanical design, and how does that contrast with the issues that you alluded to earlier on these very complex, you know, multi-dimensional front spoilers and stuff. So, talk about the rising rate yeah, front. Yeah. Well, uh, that's quite an interesting point, and you know, I'd have to say the car was was very good in every respect, and you wouldn't get the results that we had if it wasn't very good in every respect. But I suppose I'd have to say that the aerodynamics were. Um, the least impressive of, of all the aspects of the car. It's a little unfair, in, but yes, it does look very simplistic today, for example. Uh, but even back in that era, you know, we, we had quite a simple front wing. In that period, you saw some very subtle shape start to appear in the Leighton House front wing, for example, and, and several people had the biplane rear wing and that sort of thing. So, yeah, the aerodynamics probably weren't its strongest point. Having said that, they were very good and, and you know, got the job done. Uh, and, of course, you had no wind tunnel in those days. You had to go to Teddington and, and borrow one. Yeah, we didn't have nearly as much aerodynamic resource at the time to apply to that car, so that was part of the answer, perhaps. But... The thing about the car is it was just very, very good aerodynamically and mechanically. It was just extremely user-friendly. Uh, Ayrton used to describe it as uh, it would have just a slight understeer, but not this horrible, malignant, yeah. crossed up like that, just waiting for the exit of the corner. It would have a slight understeer, understeer with grip. And he said you could just keep giving it more throttle and just wind on a little bit more lock and it would just take whatever you could give it and of course Prost and Senna could give it plenty. <laughs> yes. um, so yeah the aerodynamics were very benign and uh, we had uh, we on purpose lengthened the wheelbase to accommodate the feet behind the axle but we also thought a longer wheelbase would be uh, less pitch sensitive which it was and as, as Matthew mentions, we'd, um, we spent quite a lot of time with the front suspension introducing uh, some rising rate into the pull rod and, uh, and the tracking system to, to generate rising rate, which helped to control the pitch. So you're, you've got pitch control plus fairly benign pitch characteristics in the aerodynamics to begin with. Mm -hmm. And uh, that used to be one of the big tuning features was uh, adjusting the rising rate uh, on the pull rod, uh, shortening the pull rod would would do a lot of things. If you just shorten the pull rod, it would lower the ride height, it would change the gap to the bump rubber, it would increase the spring rate, it would increase the, the rising rate yeah. of the of the front suspension. So, and that was quite a big 
tuning feature right. for us. So it was just very, very good. They, they, they rarely had any complaints and when we were always competitive enough that I used to say the engineers could stay home and work on next year's car and you could just tell the mechanics, you know, if it, if it understeers or oversteer low speed, fiddle with the bars a bit. If it's high speed, fiddle with the wings a little bit and It'll you'll be all right. <laughs> <laughs> Have we got time for... Another couple of questions, so... Uh, yes, got time for one more. We're two more. Two more, right. A question for... for Good. I, w I was worried about your raffle. <laughs> all right, let's keep I'll them keep it, I'll right. keep it short. A uh, question for all three, really. With, with, with Steve and Matthew's attention to the engineering detail and the incredible detail that that car had, and, and Richard and with Ron, uh, the, the presentation side and the, the budgets that you, you asked and in, in the main got, were you the start of what we see today in terms of that incredible engineering detail and presentation in that... The 88 season, was that the start of what we see now in terms of Formula 1 and the presentation? Not necessarily the show in terms of the racing, but the way the, the teams are, the way the, the engineering detail. Did you start that well, without knowing at the time? Well, I think that's true to, to a large extent with McLaren in general in that era and just proceeding. And Ron, I think, was always quite visionary in that respect. You know, if you see the presentation of the garages these days and and the branding centers, as they call them. So Ron was always leading the way with all of that. The, you know, the hard uh, hoardings around the garage, the overhead lighting and all the paraphernalia that comes down with it. People used to kind of laugh at Ron for all of that, but you know, he started all of that. Uh, the progression from motorhomes that were just a motorhome to what you see today, it's Ron that started all of that. The attention to detail, Ron had all of that. Barnard uh, had drilled that into his attention to detail, so we tried to carry that on and pay attention to the details. Um, you know, Ron used to say, you talk about budgets and things. Uh, I, I asked Ron about money, you know, show me the money. Uh, Richard alludes to the marketing side of things. We were always very appreciative of the marketing people for s supplying us with the money because we couldn't do anything without the money. So asking Ron about money, he he said uh, to me, you just make the car go fast. And, <laughs> And if I can't keep up with the money, I'll let you know. Uh, OK, I've got another one he, here, he, Simon. He never let me know. He never let you know. Another question here, Simon. So we'll take a couple more, OK? Hi there. You were talking about, uh, earlier on, about you falling asleep, Steve. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I was at a test at Silverstone, and uh, Indy said to me, what's the snoring coming on on the radio? And uh, we're chasing around, looking finding out, and there was a snoring, and I went into the motorhome, and there you were, fast asleep, <laughs> head on the button on the microphone, snoring away. <laughs> you seemed to fall asleep a lot. Well, it was a high-pressure situation in front of the Well, actually, a bit... You had to take a bit of rest when you got in, the in, chance. In the book, uh, there is a lovely little snapshot of your test driver... Mm. who used to like, when you were having a hard day's testing, you'd do 12 laps, come in for 15 minutes, make some changes, another 12 laps. And he actually used to sit down on the, on the ground, leaning against the concrete pit, and go to sleep. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you know, you've got to well, you get, you get your rest when you can. <laughs> okay. yeah. On the desk? I can't hear. Mr. Regarding Lando. the engineers on the 
on the desk there and many engineers in this uh, audience. Uh, just like to point out that I've painted race cars for the last 30 plus years. Can you just understand that painting a race car is art form and not an engineering solution? <laughs> <laughs> Could you we, comment on that, please? We, uh, George, we very much appreciate the, all the paint on the, on the cars. And I, I know it was yeah. difficult with the, you know, you had to put the white on first, the rocket red, the clear coat over the top, etc. I would want you to strip it back to bare carbon every time, and Ron wanted it perfect. And how can you get the car repainted in that short amount of time? And as you used to say, you can't race, you can't... Uh, rush the chemicals, so uh, <laughs> we, we know the pressure that we yeah, put yeah. you on. <laughs> no, I just wanted to remind everybody that uh, every time I meet up with George, if it's not the first thing he says, it's the second or third, but it's, <laughs> it's, it's to always bear in mind that it's the paint that crosses the line first. <laughs> well, George, thanks for that. <laughs> we do appreciate you making the cars look so good. Actually, ladies and gents, I know in a minute Steve's going to wrap it up, this Steve here, but one thing I would like to do this evening, all of you that have been or are McLaren, can you just stand up, please, yeah, in the audience? Point. Can you just take a stand? Have we got... Please stand up, those of you that were or are McLaren. <laughs> ladies and gents, give them a round of applause, please. Eh? Some of the best teammates you could ever have. Those of you that stood up, actually, Howard did ask earlier, and I must ask this question. When Matthew and I were here doing an event, I think seven years ago, we did a bit of a group photo of the McLaren boys and girls. Those of you that stood up at the end, can we just get you up here and just have a picture of us all together? Because we, we've lost a couple of great people recently. We lost Gavin Monument, who was one of the great um, stalwarts recently. And we lost uh, Steve Morrow Forklift last year, and Ron paid tribute to him as well. So to present company and absent friends, for those that can no longer be with us, let's remember them as well. Very important. Yeah, quite right. Yeah. Fantastic. <laughs> I could stand and listen to these guys all evening, and I'm sure you can. So a big round of applause and say thank you for being so open about this. Well done, guys. Um, now, now... Well, thank you. Don't forget the book is available, okay, as we always say. But just before we do the world-famous raffle, I've got something for you three guys, okay? So just bear with me. Well, just... Just while he's uh, getting that organised, um, I'd just like to say that, uh, you know, uh, at the time, back in 1988, uh, this car represented all the, all the experience of McLaren up to that time. And I'd just like to pay tribute to all those wonderful McLaren people that made it happen. You know, the fabricators, the laminators, the, the people that made such a good job of, of building the car and manufacturing it, to the race team and the test team who, who made that all happen, to my colleagues in the design office who, who did this design and we're very much appreciative of all those people that worked so hard to, to make our design uh, reality. Uh, I took a little bit different approach with this car perhaps. I, I felt the way to a more competitive car was to involve more people and to try to involve all of the brain power of all of the people in the 
in the design office and Ron had uh, given me the task of uh, being the captain of that team and to me the uh, success of this car is just the ultimate testament to the uh, benefits of uh, teamwork so thanks so much to all those McLaren people that worked so hard to make this well, story sir. what it is. Well,